speed is critical for us, you know, on the private side in, in being successful. So where you may submit a deal to the bank and it just goes in the queue and wherever you came into the queue, you're waiting for your spot, regardless yeah. of the priority of the deal. With us, if we have a deal that's coming in, that's a good deal that we want to sink our teeth into and want to go ahead and, and fund it, we're going to prioritize that, Yeah, right? It goes to the top of the pile. And, you know, we may even preemptively reach out to our lawyer and say, heads up, this file's coming in. It's a quick close. It's closing, you know, next week. We need to get it done. So here, if you need to prep your side, go ahead and do it. And we'll flip you over the rest of the documents when we have them. It's just, uh, you know, again, coming back to the common sense aspect. Thanks for tuning in to the Canadian Private Lenders Podcast, the show about starting a private lender in Canada, the mortgage industry, and the real estate industry. Your hosts are Neil Andrino and Ryan McNeil. Enjoy. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the Canadian Private Lenders Podcast. This is episode six with your hosts, Ryan McNeil and Neil Andrino. How you doing today, Neil? Good. I was just telling you I had a little victory. I found M&Ms in my closet or in my pantry. So I'm a, I'm a happy man. So jealous. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of jealous we're not in studio right now. But <laughs> I was going to wash some strawberries and instead I found these. So I figured it'd be the same difference. Yeah, yeah. No caloric difference between the two, right? Yeah, exactly. But no, I'm, I'm happy to be back. I was away in, uh, in Europe for a bit. And uh, what an eye-opening experience. Every time I go... I feel like they've already had a crazy inflationary cycle in, in the times of history. Like things over there are so expensive. Mm-hmm. So, and I understand our currency isn't isn't propped to be the same value. But even when you look at like what the average person's living in, like how they commute, like the average person doesn't own a vehicle, they're taking public transit. The average apartment size is probably half of North America's. Right. Like it's just a whole different lifestyle and mindset over there. That I think everyone's kind of gotten used to. Yeah. But they've already, like, I think we're struggling here to kind of like people like, well, I expect to have a vehicle, a thousand square foot apartment or own my own house. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And they've like, like you said, Neil, that's probably been a century ago that major European cities already went through this where it became accepted that you were going to have a smaller space to live in. Public transportation was going to be readily available. And like you said, we Canadians seem to be addicted to having the, uh, 3,000 square foot home on an acre of land and uh, having two cars in the driveway. Feeling attacked. Well, <laughs> it, uh, it's the American dream is I feel like it would establish it. But it was interesting to see because I think I talked about it on here before, but I went to a presentation by the chief economist from CIBC and he was saying like, it's going to be a mindset shift. That's what's going to change in Canada is people need to get comfortable renting. He said, over here, you're considered a failure if you're 35 and you rent. Over there, it's normal that you spend your entire life living with your family, going between rental spaces. Yeah. So it was a it was an interesting idea. But I told you before we came on, I had a little story to tell you from Europe. And it was partially from my frustration. But before we went, we wanted to rent a car because we were doing a road trip across a few countries. Could not, for the life of us, find a car. Like anywhere online. Now, we were only booking maybe three weeks, a month out. So it felt maybe three weeks. So it felt a bit short notice. And so we're like, okay, it's probably our fault. Nobody had one, Kayak, Expedia, all the different search engines. Ended up finding one from National. And what we did is we had to basically choose alternative locations. So instead of like choosing airports, we had to choose like a random branch in one city and a random branch in another city. 
And that was the other part of the problem is we were doing a different drop off from pickup, which in general they don't love. But yeah, my, my point is like we got to the first airport, which online had no vehicles. It showed no vehicles for us. And right when you walk out, they have a massive parking lot, like probably a thousand cars full, like full. And every single rental brand is there. They all had their little booths. And we had showed up, we ended up coming a day early. So I wanted to see if I could move our rental car forward. National said no. So I said, okay, you know what I'm gonna do? Like as I walk across this parking lot, I'm gonna go into every single one of these places and ask them for a car because all of these parking lots are full. I'm not kidding you. I went into probably five or six of them. It was the same answer. I'd wait in line. I'd get to the desk. I'd say, hey, I'm just looking for a car for one night. I'm going to take it now. I'll have it back to you at 8 a.m. in the morning. Same drop off. The whole works. No, we have no cars available. And I'm looking out the window being like, I can see 100 cars. You're telling me that all of these are about to get picked up and taken away. And they said, yep, yep, yep. Anyways, long story short, couldn't find a car. One company was willing to give us a Fiat 500 for like 400 euros, so $600. A two-seater little Fiat 500 for 600 bucks for 24 hours. Um, and so we're like, no, it's all good. We'll take a train. So we took a train to the city where we're going. The next morning, we came back to pick up our rental car. I kid you not, not one of those vehicles had moved. Not a single one. And like, I'm a car nut. So like, for me, I could literally like specifically know each of the models were sitting there. And then when we got to location, when we rented our car, we went to the location we were going to. There was car rental places there and they all had full parking lots. So in true fashion, here's my conspiracy is that they're, they have the vehicles available, but they're holding the inventory back. And basically, I think the mindset is now like, like, hey, we can put one car out at triple rate and we'll keep the other two behind. And I, I'm having seen, and I, I feel like this is not just rental cars. I feel like there's a lot of different industries that learn during COVID. They're like, wait a second. If we don't have inventory, we can crank our margins up by 50, 60, 70%. Well, then let's just keep it at a minimum inventory. And luxury has done this. Luxury brands have done this for the history of time, right? It's like the fancy thing, like, okay, there's only so many boots or so many shoes, so many watches, so many whatever. And so people go nuts for it. And I'm wondering if that is coming down on the general consumer. And that's, I guess, boils back to some of our inflation numbers don't seem to be cooling. Even though consumer spending is dropping, I feel like companies are just making up their losses by increasing the prices by the the few that continue to purchase. Do you know what I mean? You know what I think it is, Neil? I think they knew you were coming. <laughs> and they said, there's no fucking way we're lending to this guy. We're not giving a car to this guy. No chance. This guy's a sucker. They know your history. <laughs> <laughs> they pulled up my driving record. And they're like, this guy yeah. slid into a few ditches in his past. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe we'll have to tell that story uh, on a future pod. Yeah, but, uh, 100%. Yeah, that was, that's what it was. But that, that is interesting. I don't know. I don't really get it. Maybe like a minimum price threshold they're willing to put them out at, but it doesn't make sense to hold that much inventory, does it? I don't think so. But I, like I said, it was just the craziest thing that every rental car parking lot that we drove past or went to had a shit ton of cars. And the two groups of guys that were over there were begging. Like we were begging people for cars and we ended up paying... Like for like five days, we still spent like twelve, thirteen hundred dollars on a small sedan. Wow, like that seems yeah. I feel like not so long ago, like it yeah. would, would have been like three hundred bucks. So, anyways, yeah, it went crazy here in Canada during COVID and for a year or two after. But it seems to have regulated a little bit now. Yeah, you know, when I travel within domestically within Canada, it's really hit or miss. Like sometimes I'll get it for you know, $200 for three days. And other times I'm paying $600 for the same amount of time, right? So yeah, it just 
you know, supply and demand, I guess, but supply and demand. For, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyways, that was that's my conspiracy of I sure I'm sure there's a bit of it going on. If it's as intense as everything is being one thirded, I don't know. And there's also the mix of like a lot of people said a lot of factories and stuff slowed down and they can't just overnight ramp back up to full production, right? There's 40 steps mm-hmm. in a production line and you can't expect them all to overnight go back to where it was. Right. And the reason I brought this up is you flipped me an article saying the BOC is shrugging off inflation concerns. No big deal. Yeah, it's, it's whatever. But we only raised rates 500 points because of it. But to put context on it, it's we had two months of growth because we hit a bottom of 2.8%, which was amazing. It was like... We saw that number two. Everyone was excited. This is what we've been yeah. we've been wanting. That was in July. August went up to three point three percent, and now we're back to four percent. Back to four percent. And what are they chalking it up to? Rent rent increases, of course. And I think it was energy that are you know the most volatile at this point. Yeah, exactly. And they said basically we still have insane demand on the rental front. Energy also increased partially through a tax, <laughs> <laughs> and so they're kind of not looking at it from a month-to-month basis. They're trying to look at overall trends and they kind of stood behind their fact that they're going to try and hold at five. They're going to try and hold steady without doing any more rate hikes in a more extended period of time to see what the outcome is going to be before going either direction. But they also, again, have done the most discomforting thing, which is they keep reminding everyone that rate hikes are not out of the question. Yeah, still hanging it over our heads. Yes, exactly. Anyways, I... uh, just that's where my long-winded story came from. It's all price fixing. That's my story. That must be a <laughs> perfect segue into our topic today. Uh, maybe not really, but uh, we're <laughs> we're going to talk about why a borrower would use private funds. Okay, so we touched on this in our one of our first couple episodes, but we'll just go in a little bit more depth today. So there is some fairly obvious, or maybe not so obvious, reasons why a borrower would use private funds, but uh, we'll take you through that. And I'll kick it off by saying, you know, I've been doing this for a while. And a lot of the clients we get, especially in the last couple of years, are actually very bankable. And they use private lending by choice. Mm -hmm. And there's a multitude of reasons for that. And probably the top factor, and and Neil, you and I had a meeting earlier today, and we were talking about this, and the client wanted flexibility and didn't want to wait around, right? So and flexibility can mean a variety of different things. That could be on credit profile. It can be loan to value. It can be liquidity requirements. In general, private lending is just more common sense approach and therefore can have more flexibility around these criteria. Yeah, exactly. You, you define it perfectly. I think it's whenever I talk to anyone that's like looking at a project, I always remind them I'm like when you go into a large institutional lender, they're so heavily regulated and they've been around for so long. They have a very defined script that they want to follow to approve your funds. And so unfortunately, in a lot of scenarios, especially in ones where you have the opportunity to make money, they don't usually fall under those perfect little scripts, right? And the second that you wane from that requirement, any of those requirements, if there's 20, if you miss one of them, you're officially out of the pool and there's no conversation that can be had there. Yep. Now, that doesn't mean with institutions, once you get bigger and you're in commercial lending, they start to have a, ch- a conversation with you. And then you can start to move things around. But if you're looking at your first project or even your first, any project basically under 5 million bucks, institutions aren't really going to move the needle around for you. They're not going to move the goalposts. And so you end up looking with alternatives where you can actually have that conversation and get that flexibility that you you require. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well said, Neil. And in general, just on the thought of common sense, for example, here, you know, you could have a client who high net worth owns their, say it's a half million dollar property, free and clear, no mortgage on it. And they only need to borrow 50 or $75,000. The bank won't do it. Yeah. It doesn't fit in their box. It doesn't fit in with their LTV parameters, or maybe the client's not a fit if they own their own business or whatever it may be. But I mean, you apply some common sense to that. You know, they've got plenty of net worth. Maybe it's tied up in investments or whatever reason, but you're talking 15, 20% loan to value, right? Yep. On a nice property. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. But that's just one of many reasons that uh, clients look for that flexibility with some of their lending options. 100%. The next one that you mentioned to me, which I think it was funny, that was also another big conversation that we had today. And I feel like it's getting worse. It's like, I don't know if it's volume or work from home or whatever it may be, but speed, efficiency, mm-hmm. timelines. It seems, I think maybe it's because the checklists have always grown. Again, institutional lenders, like once they get burnt on one thing, someone comes up with some new way to burn them, then they add a new new checklist on, right? I think the most recent one was they need a blood sample. But <laughs> the they just keep adding on little items that make it take forever. And then you go through the same process of they ask you for the documents and you need to go produce them. And sometimes it's not as simple as you just sending a picture of a bank statement. It might require a third party to put them together. Then you provide it to them. They might have questions. You have to go back to the third party. Then it has to go back up through their two or three stages of underwriting. And so I guess, yeah, as a whole, speed is just when you're running a business and and or you have like people to pay and cash flow constraints sitting around for six, eight weeks which is not at all like a stretch. It could even be longer than that quite easily, whether it be a bank draw or especially for a new mortgage, easily on a refinance could be eight weeks plus. Yeah, It's insane. Speed is so crucial. It's crazy. And you know, just to keep talking about the convo we had earlier, I mean, you might have underwriter A who's on vacation and it gets hand off <laughs> to underwriter B who doesn't know what they're doing at that point and it takes them another week, two weeks to go through it. Or, you know, maybe it gets escalated to Toronto and, you know, you're talking about a little deal in Atlantic Canada and it gets deprioritized, right? But speed is critical for us, you know, on the private side in in being successful. So where you may submit a deal to the bank and it just goes in the queue and wherever you came into the queue, you're waiting for your spot, regardless of the priority of the deal. With us, if we have a deal that's coming in, that's a good deal that we want to sink our teeth into and want to go ahead and, and fund it. We're going to prioritize that. Yeah. Right. It goes to the top of the pile. And, you know, we may even preemptively reach out to our lawyer and say, heads up, this file's coming in. It's a quick close. It's closing, you know, next week. We need to get it done. So, here, if you need to prep your side, go ahead and do it. And we'll flip you over the rest of the documents when we have them. It's just, uh, you know, again, coming back to the common sense aspect. Yeah. The other thing, like another nice thing I find is you can get a yay or a nay probably within. 36 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, like in, in two to three days, if we're, it's not going to work, there's pretty much a good chance you've already commented on it. Whereas again, you go through the bank avenues, you could be waiting for weeks, yep. thinking you're going to get there and you yep. start to make plans based on that. And then they pull the shoot. And you're like, what the hell? You guys just wasted 20 of my days, which is enormous, right? Absolutely. Excellent point, Neil. And I, I hadn't even really considered that point, but you know, with us too, I'm always surprised, you know, sometimes people are scared to say no, so they'll put it off. They don't want to piss people off or whatever. But I'm always surprised at how thankful brokers are when we just give them a quick no. We just say it's not a fit for our book. 
or it's not a fit at this time because of X, Y, and Z, literally 20 minutes after it gets submitted to us, right? Yep. And they can move along about their day and they can sub it somewhere else if they want to, or if the deal's just not going to fit, then just let it go at that point. Time is money in this industry. If you give it back to the brokers, they're going to appreciate it. Yeah, exactly. Time is, is stress levels too. And I see it now with everyone that applies. Honestly, speed seems to be one of the biggest. I know flexibility is also huge. It's speed and flexibility would probably be like tied because just again, right now, funding dates and timelines are astronomical. Yeah, crazy. One more quick point I'll make on uh, on speed and flexibility as well is that we can be a backup option as well. So good brokers will sub a deal yeah. to us. Like like you said, Neil, if you've got a lender who's messing around and taking 20, 30 days to get back to you and you're not really sure whether that's going to get signed off or not, send it over to the private lender, right? And then get that paper that just in case you need it, that a close can come together you know, near the deadline, right? And then you, you probably already have your appraisal ordered at that point. You got all your ducks in your row, all your documents are available and you're able to quickly flip it over and get it closed. So it's just another option. I mean, obviously we want to get the deal done when we have a, when we commit on something, but we totally understand as well if we're just to back up at times, if that's uh, if that's clear coming in from the broker, then we're happy to do that. As you're saying that, I'm like, is there ever going to be a product where it's like an insurance policy if, if a deal doesn't come through? Because this sounds crazy, but I am seeing more a lender institutional type loans pull the plug post approval, like closer to the deadline. And this might be a nuance to the specific market that we're in right now where capital markets are a little bit low, like people are very adverse. But like I know I'm I'm having two deals right now where they were approved for clients through like your big institutions and were past the firm dates and the whole works. And now they're pulling the shoot. Mm. And so I'm like, I wonder if there would ever be a product someday where some brand would be like, for X amount of dollars, we will fund your deal instantaneously, like on clothes. Like if someone pulls a shoot, we show up on that day and and hit it. And if we don't end up funding it, yo, it's a thousand bucks. Yep. That'd be kind of a cool business. I like it. Just throwing it out there. Cool. Cool. Okay. And number three is the short-term aspect of our loans. Okay. So when it comes to private loans, most of them are one-year terms or less. Some private lenders will do you know, the two and three-year terms, but I'd say the vast majority focus on that one-year term, sometimes even yep. less than that, three or six months as well. So you know, people think, oh, well, you know, why would I pay 10%, 12% for a private loan plus a fee? But if you think about it, if you're looking at something short-term like bridge financing, or you, know, you got to close quickly before you can refinance at a traditional lender, or even a fix and flip loan, right, Neil? Like I know you've done yep. these before. Yep. You, maybe your timeline is what, four to six months on something like yep. that, depending on the scale of the renovations. You're essentially paying 1% a month for as long as you hold the loan, right? So that 12% isn't actually 12% if you don't hold it for the full 12 months. If you can minimize your timeline, you're only paying, call it, let's call it four or 5% on that, plus a fee in the range of 3%. So you might be paying 7% on that. You work that into your budget. Right. I always tell brokers and clients who are real estate investors, work it into your budget, calculate what the dollar cost is going to be for those interest payments for those five months or six months or whatever you need them for. Calculate the fee as part of your budget and check if is it going to maintain your profitability? Is your profitability going to be strong enough? If it is, it makes sense to do the deal. Yeah, 100%. I, I think even if you can get approved, like, First of all, most institutions will not bite into those kinds of projects, like that short-term kind of loan. They do not want to be dealing with the amount of administration and work that goes into putting it because their whole idea is they don't necessarily charge as many fees up front. 
but ultimately they're taking you on for three to five years at minimum, if not, you're becoming a lifelong customer and they make it over that period of time. So the two things that are going to happen is either they're not going to approve it if they know the whole picture, or even if you get into an open variable product, you're still going to have a three-month penalty with them. So just consider that, yep. that that cost is going to be there. There will be some setup fees, depending if you did it with a broker or not. And then additionally, your relationship with them is going to be, is going to be damaged. Mm-hmm. Like they do not want to be lent, like, well, you've now done this twice to us where you said you're going to take on a 24-month term and then eight months into it, you pay us out. And the, for their books, that's not how they run them. And that's not what like they're because they package the mortgages together and sell them. Right. And so they if they're having a bunch of them getting paid out in advance, it doesn't benefit them. If anything, it actually makes it quite the contrary where they now have to find a, a way to reallocate the capital to continue to make a return to pay out on the book that they've sold. So again, you, you won't get through it a ton. I actually have, again, it's this is the nice part of being, I guess, an agent is I see a lot of volume this way is I have a client who has a home flipper and he had flipped a few houses. And most recently, the bank said no, even though he's got perfect credit, he's got a huge down payment. They just, they're like, we're not that brand of bank. Like we don't want to, if you want to buy this and live, and he's actually buying this one to live in, but they're not subscribing to that because they're like, that's what you said on the last one. And then you, four months later, it was back on market, right? And, and so they just don't, they're not interested in being involved in that. They're going to leave him for a bit. But it's tough because he had built a good relationship with them in some sense by having the loans. But now he, he's damaged that by flipping them too soon. And that's just not the business that they want to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Great points there, Neil. And, you know, just on your comment about uh, the open aspect or the no penalties, right? So you will with any traditional lender, like you said, you're going to have that three month interest penalty with us, you know, with most private lenders, you're looking at an open term loan. So if you do get that reno job done, or your your bridge financing, uh, you've sold your other property, and you need to pay out the loan after those, you know, four to six months, you pay it out without any penalties. And that's kind of the key there. And that's also why we get repeat clients coming in from a real estate investor perspective, right? Because they go through the process, they realize, yeah, okay, I got to make sure that I've got my timelines in check, and I've got all my trades in place to make sure this timeline flows smoothly. But if it does, I can accurately predict what my costs are going to be and build that in to my budget and then ensure I can do it and then flip into the next project. And then, like you said, Neil, if they don't leave with a sour taste in their mouth, chances are they're going to want to come back and do it again. A hundred percent. That's, I'd say that was the biggest surprise to me. I guess I knew it in practice and in my head, but then now being a part of this with you guys and seeing the types of clientele that are applying and or being lent to, they are very reputable builders that have been doing this for 30 plus years. And they're open to working with a private just simply for the things that we just outlined. Even the builder that we went and looked at today builds a nice product, has strong sales in hand, has had some really huge wins in the past. But again, for speed and flexibility, they want to work with us and they're looking to build a relationship where they can kind of keep doing it moving forward. And in some sense, it's almost like a line of credit for these guys. And so, yeah, it blows my mind that those are the people that are borrowing. And I don't know that I'm trying to sell this to anyone, but it's like, yeah, there was a lot of negative connotation around it, I think, in the past. But many good builders, strong business people utilize them just because, again, it, it makes sense and it can help keep their business growing at a nice pace. Absolutely. In your experience, what was the average length of term? Like, I don't honestly know if you could even like think about the average length of term that people signed on to, yep. but then the actual average like turned around paid out loan time. Yeah, great question. It's not that exciting. So <laughs> for 12-month terms, mm-hmm. average term, 
tended to be 13 months. Just over the deadline. And for construction and renovation loans, tended to be 10, 11 months. Interesting. It really depends too, right? Because if you're talking like a ground up construction loan too, some borrowers will hold off, and we actually prefer this because it increases our security till the project is like weather tight, right? So you're already Mm -hmm. 40% done before you draw any funds. And then you may only need the loan at that point for six or seven months to get Mm -hmm. from weather tight to completion. So, you know, I haven't looked at the data recently, but I would expect it's still somewhere in that 10 to 13 month range, right around one year term for the most part. But, you know, if you just look at specifically fix and flip renovation type loans, it's much less. It's funny that you say that the average is 13 months on the one-year terms. And it's like people push really hard to hit that one year. And yeah. ultimately, they end up rolling over. And then they're just missing that target. I mean, I guess it's good on the private lending end. If you are the owner of the business or the underwriter, like you get an opportunity to make a bit more money on that extra month. But it's interesting. It's almost like just a consumer mindset of like, if you know you have to hit January 1st, in May, you're kind of slack. Yeah. And then November, you're like, ah, shit, I got like 90 days of stuff here and I only got 60 days left. <laughs> yeah. And just like we already touched on on this podcast, probably a good way to wrap up that, you know, if you've only got 60 days to plan it to get your bank refinancing, maybe it's going to take them 90 to get through it. Right. And that's going to delay you a bit. So I think the vast majority as a result of that is slightly delayed refinancings. Mm. And the other thing too is that, you know, when they get the renewal notice for us and their rate and fee might be bumped up a bit, it gives them a kick in the ass to to get things in gear and move along. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Right. All right. Well, that makes sense on why I, again, I've always been an advocate of it. I think we've talked about it a few times already in the past, but I think, I guess, if you're someone that's thinking about getting into private lending and concerned about who your client base is going to be and why someone would actually want to work with you, I think this can help to alleviate some of that. And also the kind of, again, where, where the value is on the rates for somebody like, why oh, it makes total sense a lot of the time. So uh, hopefully that was, that was helpful. Yeah, I hope so. And uh, we certainly appreciate uh, everybody tuning in today. And uh, hopefully you took something away from this one. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Hey guys, it's Neil Andrino, your uh, co-host and your co-founder at Keystone Capital and Director of Investor Relations. I'm also a real estate agent, real estate investor, and business owner. And your co-host here, Ryan McNeil. I'm the co-founder and president of Keystone Capital Group. Keystone Capital Group is licensed under the Mortgage Regulations Act of Nova Scotia, license number 3000549, and through FCMB, license number 88799. And keep in mind, the views of this podcast are for informational purposes only and is not financial advice. 